Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Daily. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by every political fan's favourite expert, Sir John Curtis, who become a star of election night. His brain is incredible. It was, I mean, this. there's so much in this. There's so much analysis. Oh, my word. You run yourself a bath, get a bar of chocolate and enjoy this because it's it's so good. I'm not going to clog up your ears with any more time because you need it all for John Curtis. I began by asking him who was going to win the election. Well, I think given that the opinion polls three weeks out put the Conservatives 12 or 13 points ahead and all, the minimum lead we now have an opinion poll is at eight points that at this point at least the conservatives are clearly the favorites to win this election i would say they're around two to one on around a 66 percent chance um that lead of course sounds large it's partly inflated by the fact that the brexit party is not now standing in conservative held seats and that will probably mean the conservatives gaining votes that won't make any difference to the outcome in terms of seats um uh, for the most part um uh, uh, so you know uh, and the, you know bearing that in mind you the conservatives probably need to be somewhere at the around six seven point lead point to be sh- reasonably sure of getting over a majority if it goes down below that uh, then we're potentially in hung parliament territory and we're not so far ahead of that with three weeks to go and given what we've known in the past in the way of a error in the polls and b volatility in public opinion that we can kind of say well the conservatives are bound to win but they are very clearly favorites at the moment everyone obviously mindful of what happened last time yeah and a similar story in the polls with a clear lead yeah. everyone thought it was a foregone conclusion and then that amazing moment when the exit poll comes out is this campaign different is the polling different well th- this this campaign is certainly different i mean the circumstances that enabled uh, Jerry McCorbyn to close the gap on the Conservatives, uh, they're not identical now. So number one, of course, is that you know the, Jeremy, the one thing that Jeremy Corbyn is good at is campaigning. And that's something that voters dis- most voters discovered anew in 2017. Um, we indeed more broadly discovered that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was able to translate a style that had been perfected for 30 years in, as it were, Islington Town Hall, talking to left-wing groups, to a much wider section of the public. And by the end of the election campaign, it was quite clear he was enjoying himself. And one suspects that Jeremy Corbyn would wish that the art of, or the requirements of a party leader was simply to campaign for um, 365 (laughs) days of the year. But at that, he's good. And of course, it so happened, his opponent at that time, Theresa May, Um, what did not prove to be particularly adept at campaigning and that of course was particularly disastrous to the Conservatives because it was her that above all they had decided to sell and of course in the end strong and stable became weak and wobbly for a variety of reasons so but now this time of course he faces I mean somebody who sometimes makes mistakes sometimes his ability with words gets away with him but 
um, is clearly a much more formidable campaigner than is Theresa May. Equally, I mean, uh, although Nigel Farage is now fighting on a more limited front, but still, one of our most charismatic politicians who was standing for the Eurosceptic cause two years, Paul Nuttall, who I suspect 99.9% of our listeners have completely forgotten about. <laughs> and even Joe Swinson, although arguably not in the same league, is certainly better than the hapless Tim Farron. Who's like, so, the, so the contrast, that it, you know, first of all, isn't there. So that's point one. Point two, which makes things more difficult uh, uh, for Labour, um, uh, is that the, the principal source of losses that the party has suffered since 2017 has not been to the Conservatives, although they are losing votes to the Conservatives, but the principal source of loss is to the Liberal Democrats, and that's because of the position on Brexit. Labour, of course, has spent the last three years trying to triangulate and compromise on Brexit, albeit on a somewhat moving position. Um, but the problem has been that it basically, uh, that means that voters feel confused about the party's position and it's lost ground amongst both Remainers and amongst Leavers. It's not held on to the Leavers that it's been desperate to hang on to, um, but it, it, at the same time, it's also managed to lose the Remain vote largely to the Democrats. So that's, Brexit matters more now than it did two years to go to voters. It's structuring the vote more. Voters are more likely to say it's the most important issue, but it's one the one issue on which the Labour Party does not have a, a clear message. So that's two way, two crucial ways in which the, the battle is different. He isn't just now trying to get votes away from the Conservatives. He's got to try to win them back from the Democrats, but they've been lost on an issue on which the party rather struggles and second he's got much more competition in terms of providing effective leadership and then of course what we also have to bear in mind is that unlike 2017 Jeremy Corbyn is no longer an unknown character to most of the electorate and unfortunately for him in the two years since 2017 voters perceptions of him have gone back to where they were and indeed are slightly worse than they were at the beginning of the 2017 campaign and then inevitably this is raises the question well okay uh, when you're fresh and new maybe you can change people's views of you uh, and he did remarkably well on that but second time round is bound to be more difficult because voters have evidently thought once thought you were okay having been persuaded in the last election changed their minds again can you get change their minds back that's going to be more difficult I wonder if there's something we're missing, or, or more to the point that, that maybe pollsters are missing. Uh-huh. Or that, maybe I'm just missing. Or maybe, <laughs> well, I didn't want to make it personal. But <laughs> I just wonder, given what happened last time, and you know, when you think about the Remain campaign and the referendum that they didn't uh, factor in the fact that people who hadn't voted before were going to vote, are there any things that could happen in this election that maybe didn't happen before? But maybe just as simple as people who are Labour voters who don't like Corbyn but when they get into the ballot box, you know, they might go in there thinking they're going to vote for the Lib Dems. But actually, the thought of Boris Johnson being prime minister is so repellent to them that they can, in that moment, bring themselves to vote for Corbyn one last time. Well, uh, they might do. But of course, insofar as dislike of, of Johnson can be expressed as easily through voting for the Democrats as the Labour Party. I mean, a crucial he- issue here is, you know, is where is your voter located? Sure, if your voter is located in a seat where it is clear that the Labour Party are clearly the party that has the best chance of defeating the Conservatives, you may indeed come to that conclusion. But equally, if you're in one of the constituencies where it looks like the Democrats have the better chance, you may well want to go with that tide. And, you know, there is some beginning to be some evidence in the polling, particularly from Ipsos Mori, that maybe some of this tactical switching on the Remain side is going on. And certainly for those on the Remain side, 
given the state of the polls, this certainly needs to happen. Because, of course, the reason, above all, why Boris Johnson has a poll lead, it's not because support for Leave has gone up. We are still divided 50-50 on that subject. You know, support for the Conservative Party and the Brexit Party is not higher than support for all the parties in favour of a second EU referendum. It's just that the vote is split differently. Boris Johnson's signal achievement has been to organise the Leave vote around the Conservative Party, around two-thirds of Leave voters are now saying they're going to vote Conservative. That's even higher than the three-fifths that Theresa May had in 2017. In contrast, you know, although Labour has made some progress during this campaign so far in getting back some of those voters it lost to the Democrats, it's still only running at just over 40% amongst Remain voters, and that, in a sense, is the story of the election. Now, I guess... The thing, therefore, we do have to... I mean, there are two things, as it were, that can upset the apple cart over which Boris Johnson doesn't have any control. Number one is indeed that, yet again, the Labour Party pulls off the same trick and it manages to unite the Remain vote behind it, i.e. basically it does season, squeezing the Liberal Democrat vote in the way that the Conservatives have the Brexit Party vote, but I think it's going to be more difficult. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brexit Party voters always liked Boris Johnson, even before he became Prime Minister, Liberal Democrats aren't that keen on Jeremy Corbyn. So the journey is a more difficult one for them. Um, the second thing is indeed that um, the Remain vote ends up being organised tactically rather effectively. Now, I think in truth, the polls would have to narrow from where they are before that could be decisive. But certainly you can imagine uh, um, that, you know, the Tories might lose 10 more seats than they weren't expecting to if indeed we got a reasonable degree of tactical voting that was efficiently organised. In terms of tactical voting, how much of it do you think actually goes on and how much of it is effective? I remember in 1997, it seemed to have had a particularly effective yeah. campaign. Yeah, and the reason why, it, I mean, the point about the 1997 election is that there were, there were two crucial conditions in place. I mean, the first was anybody who wasn't going to vote for the Conservatives wanted to see the Conservatives out after 18 years of Thatcherism and the a, a party that was rather divided over its relationship with the European <laughs> Union, we might remind ourselves. And, of course, it suffered above all that serious blow to its economic credibility of Black Wednesday in September 1992, even though actually after that the economy took off uh, rather well, but the perception was that the Tories weren't in charge of the economy. Um, so, so that was one, and, and tactical voting is only going to occur if indeed quite a lot of voters really dislike one of the parties. And arguably, if you look at the attitudes of Remain voters towards Boris Johnson, towards um, uh, uh, the Conservative Party, um, and the truth is the Remain voters do not want to see the Conservative Party re-elected because they know if the Conservative Party is re-elected, then the United Kingdom is going to leave um, uh, the European Union. So that motivation is, uh, and they don't like Boris Johnson, so that motivation is there. Uh, the second thing about 1997, however, is that at that point, Labour and the Liberal Democrats were being nice to each other. Paddy Ashdown had made it quite clear he'd much prefer Labour to win the election than he than he did the, the Conservatives. Uh, Labour and the Liberal Democrats had a commonly agreed programme on constitutional reform. Mm. And it was an open secret that Tony Blair would do a deal with Paddy Ashdown um, if indeed um, the, the Labour Party didn't have an overall majority. I mean, that's not the position now. I mean, uh, I mean, Joe Swinson is as vitriol at least as vitriolic about Jeremy Corbyn as she is about Boris Johnson. Um, she utterly refuses to say that one is uh, that one of the other parties is better than the other, even though it's quite clear that which one she would have to deal with afterwards. Um, uh, and so, you know, against that backdrop, therefore, what the, the, the bit that's missing from '97 is the 
perception and the the noises off coming from the political parties which kind of say well actually you know we kind of quite like each other that's not there and then the question is going to be you know to what extent is the the former motivation going to be dominant as opposed to the latter one i mean all one can say to you is i mean in, obviously in 2017 there weren't very many places where the democrats were posing a credible second ch place challenge but where they were, actually, the Labour vote went up much less than it did elsewhere. The Liberal Democrats did rather better. So you can see some sign, even in 2017, of a bit of tactical voting going on. But obviously, the difference the Liberal Democrats face is that a lot of the places where they might now be second in reality, given that they're in a stronger position in the polls nationally than they were two years ago, are still places where they ended up third last time. Some of which, of course, is being dramatically illustrated by some of the places they're trying to win in London, such as Trickle and Munin, cities of London, Westminster South. These are places with no Liberal Democrat tradition at all. And they really are trying to achieve something quite remarkable by winning from a relatively poor third place. Well, we'll have to wait and see if they can persuade voters that they are indeed the more credible challenger to the Conservatives or not. In terms of the Remain-Leave split and, yeah. and, and how it affects this election, is it that the Leave side is effectively more organised, as yeah. you describe it, that Boris has done a pact with Nigel Farage and cleared the way? Yeah. Is it also true to say that the Leave vote is, is stickier than the Remain vote? That actually, Leave voters still really want to leave, but some Remainers would say, well, there's a sense of fair play about this, we lost, and I'm not as deeply ideological Remainer as, as perhaps people are deeply ideologically... In the end, I think that's quite difficult to sustain. And I mean, kind of, you know, one way one can see how, at the end of the day... I mean, Remain voters are just as likely to vote for a... say they're going to vote for a pro-second referendum party as Leave voters are to say that they're going to vote for a pro-Brexit party. In both cases, 80% of voters are voting, as you might expect, mm. and in both cases, the figure is higher than the equivalent figure for 2017. So um, to that extent, at least, it's difficult to argue at the end of the day that Remain voters are less concerned about Brexit. What is simply true is that Remain voters have more ways of expressing their views about Brexit, and in a long way, therefore, the differences between, for example, Labour and the Democrats over domestic issues or between both those parties and the SNP in Scotland over Scotland's constitutional status. That, that then provides us another set of reasons to, uh, that will uh, influence people's choice, not in such a way that it takes them away from a pro-second referendum party, but it does mean that the vote is split in a way that it's not been... Um, in the uh, on the leave side, and I, I think here also, of course, the other thing to bear in mind is that, you know, we've we've yet. I mean, the history of Euroscepticism as a successful electoral movement is a relatively recent one, mm. and it's not had a long-term stable political organisation. So once it was UKIP, and now it's Brexit. The Liberal Democrats have long been with us, uh, really just an extension of the Liberal Party, and that kind of therefore goes back to the Victorian era. So on that side of the fence, there's long been this um, organisational phenomenon, an organisational phenomenon that has always been our most Europhile party, that has always been the party that is most likely to appeal to the kind of socially liberal graduate uh, graduates um, uh, that are the core of, the re of, of those who vote to remain have, and have always been the group amongst whom Liberal Democrats have been relatively successful. So you can see, therefore, that in a sense, Liberal Democrats, um, w once voters have decided to stick with the Liberal Democrats, you could see how that was more likely to be a stable uh, position than was the position on the Eurosceptic side. That said, 
Um, you know, the Democrats so far have gone down during this campaign. Labour have made some progress at them, and maybe the, the vote will go down further. That, whereas usually, um, the Liberal Democrat vote goes up during the election campaign, but um, at the moment they have been going in the opposite direction. Which is particularly surprising this time, given that they've been so explicitly yep. hard remain. Yep. So what? Why is the reason that they've they've slipped back during the campaign? Well, I mean. It's a good question and it's a difficult one to answer because there isn't that much evidence uh, uh, in the opinion polls as to what's going on. I mean, it's certainly difficult to argue that Labour's domestic offer is attracting voters in a way that perhaps it's uh, rather more nuanced position on Brexit is not. Because if that were the case, we should be seeing the Labour vote going <coughs> up amongst Leave voters as much as it is amongst Remain voters. Because yes. it's the domestic agenda, it should, it should cut across Brexit. It's not. Labour's vote's gone up much more amongst Remainers than it has done amongst Leavers. Amongst Leavers, it's, it's, you know, it's just a, a, a point or two. So it's not obvious that you know, it's Labour's you know, more radical agenda and you know, more exciting agenda, perhaps, for some people uh, that, that's, that, that's bringing it across. What is true, but then this is... But, is the Labour Party is still much more successful amongst younger people than, than the Liberal Democrats. But even if you look at the, the Liberal Democrat performance in the European election, it was clear they're getting, they were not getting the younger voters even then. So it's not clear that that therefore explains the decline. It, I mean, I think you know, at the end, the, the, the best one can say to you, because it happened straight away. The moment the election was called, the Liberal Democrats went down from 18 to 16. And it's probably some people go, oh, oh, well, we actually really are going to have an election. Well, of course, the Liberal Democrats can never win. And they you know, always perpetually suffer from this idea that, you know, they, they can't win under electoral system, et cetera, et cetera. So it may just be literally some of that uh, brought people on the Labour side. But I mean, you know, clearly what hasn't happened, I think, you know, one uh, potential prognosis for the Labour Party was that it would end up losing more votes to the Liberal Democrats um, on this issue because... Um, of the party's position on Brexit. And it may be that at least by the fact that not only Labour, but also the Tories have spent quite a lot of the first two or three weeks of the campaign talking about domestic issues, insofar as that at least helps to deflect voters away from the issue of Brexit, question mark. You know, it doesn't therefore mean that the election has been fought on the <coughs> territory that above all the, the Liberal Democrats want to talk about. The, the Liberal Democrats want to frame the whole of this election around the Brexit issue. And, you know, they, they also suffer from the fact that because they did so badly in 2015 and 2017, they're getting rather less attention and airtime from the broadcasters than they would have done at a few elections ago. So that makes their job more difficult. Um, and, of course, Joe Swinson has to try to make a noise above both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn and Nigel Farage. And that would be a formidable challenge for any politician. Has Corbyn played a played a blinder then? Because if he's managed to hold on to some Remain votes and even attract them since the start of the campaign, people might uh, mock Labour's position about uh, yeah. a second referendum where they can't tell us whether they'd be yeah. leave or Remain. But in a way, has that done him some good? Well, uh, the trouble with arguing that it's a blinder is that the Labour vote is still down amongst Remainers, albeit now down somewhat less than it is amongst, down amongst Leavers. But given insofar as Labour's reluctance to come out in favour of Remain was because of a wish to try to hang on to its Leave vote, the fact that its current level <coughs> of support amongst Leave voters is little more than half what it was two years ago, I think it's difficult to argue that Labour's stance on Brexit has proved to be an electorally brilliant operation. In terms of the Lib Dems then, because they haven't cut through in a way that perhaps they would have hoped, and that may change, who yeah, knows? Yeah, sure. Is it not just the Brexit issue and, and maybe perhaps the, the strength of the Labour brand? Do they have a leadership issue as well? 
Well, I mean, I think it's fair comment to say that Jo Swinson certainly, um, you know, she ends up with more people um, disapproving than approving of her, of her on leadership. Now, given that answers to that kind of question do reflect people's partisanship, you know, not that many Liberal Democrat partisans, you start at disadvantage. But I mean, I think it's fair comment to say at the end of the day, the Liberal Democrats do badly need a charismatic leader. And, you know, I mean, for all the other things for which he later became, uh, rather, uh, his reputation got rather solid. You know, back in 1974, when the Liberal Party made its first breakthrough, Jeremy Thorpe was an extremely effective campaigner who was able to attract attention and really caused the first significant revival in his party's position. Paddy Ashdown inherited a party in deep trouble but, you know, had an ability to reach out to the electorate. And again, people take notice. David Steele, I mean, again, was somebody who, you know, uh, was able to um, uh, uh, win over voters. And Charles Kennedy, again, somebody widely respected, etc. I mean, I think it's certainly true that it's been the party's misfortune. I mean, Nick Clegg, of course, became very, very popular for a while and then all became very unpopular in the wake of the tuition fees fiasco. Um, but in truth, since then, the party hasn't managed to identify and have as its leader somebody who has... You know, you basically have to be better than average as a, as a campaigner, as a party leader, if you're going to be successful with the Democrats. Now, to give her her due, I mean, particularly in terms <coughs> of the way in which she w first won her own constituency at the age of 25, was very unlucky to lose it in 2015, and has really made it a relatively safe, seemingly Liberal Democrat seat. She's certainly demonstrated an ability in her own bailiwick to be an effective campaigner, but I think the question is now, can she operate across the wider stage and on a stage which perhaps has un unusually a uh, relatively large number of um, a double class uh, a double star um, other uh, actors on the stage it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do voters value charisma? You know, lots of people would say in this election, this is about ideas, this is about policies, not yeah. about people. Yeah. Is that reflected in voting behaviour or is charisma a powerful force in terms well, of Well, it depends, it depends what you mean by do voters like charisma. The point about charisma is not necessarily that voters like it, but that it is a means by which a party can get cut through. Or, I mean, one of the ways I like to put this is, 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 is to um, talk about the ironing board test. So my test of the ability of a politician to communicate is that the politician is on uh, the Today programme or maybe even their local radio station or whatever. Now, at that time of the day, as we're in the, you know, the, in the, uh, tip, tip, or at least in the stereotypical family, you know, uh, mum and dad are both trying to get out to work 
Uh, they're trying to get their kids to get their breakfast finished. They've just discovered that Johnny's uh, 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 got chocolate all over his shirt yesterday. So before he can be sent to school, uh, mum or dad have to iron another one. And the radio is on in the background. So you've got to be able to grab their attention. And what a charismatic politician can do is to grab people's... It can make themselves easy to hear and to listen to. So even though the person might be desperately trying to iron the shirt and to tell Johnny to get, the, get his breakfast down his throat, otherwise he's going to be late for the school bus, um, you still hear. You still get the yeah. message. You still get the headline. And that's a certain particular quality. You know, a charismatic politician, basically the, the charisma is a, an ability to communicate um, in some cases, it's simply on a one-to-one -one basis. So John Major, for example, was a brilliant politician at one-to-one, -one, but was lousy at public speaking. I mean, uh, but certainly, you need to be good at it in terms of you know uh, uh, talking to a large number of people or talking across um, a radio or television audience. So, that, so the point about charisma is not that people are going to say, "Oh, I like him because you know he's rather um, he's rather engaging," but it's that ah, I've heard what he or she has to say. Right now. Uh, beyond that, I mean, I think again, particularly coming to the Labour Party, I mean, the Labour Party has long been arguing that we think we are going to advance in a general election because we know we've got a policy platform that is popular. And indeed, despite the fact that uh, quite a lot of commentators are going, oh, surely not, actually, it's very clear that renationalising re re the utilities is rather popular. Renationalizing the railway industry is rather popular. Putting directors on company boards is rather popular. Issuing some share capital to employees is rather popular. Even uh, doing something about the charitable status of public schools is relatively popular. Actually, even freedom of movement, as opposed to immigration, is also relatively popular. But the problem the Labour Party has, however, is that while it might have ideas that although seemingly radical and certainly a reversal of much of the high watermarks of Thatcherism, um, part party's problem is that when you ask people which party is going to be best able to run the economy or even which is best able to run the health service, which is kind of meant to be classically Labour territory and on which the party has been emphasizing its credentials uh, at the beginning of the election. I mean, uh, at best, the party has a narrow lead, but if, once you start mentioning the words Jeremy Corbyn, the party can end up behind in the polls. So it seems to me that Labour's problem, it doesn't have to sell its ideas. It has to sell its ability to deliver those ideas um, in a way that makes people believe they're going to provide the country with effective government. So, I mean, so that's not so much to do with charisma, but perceptions of competence, which can be real. I mean, clearly, if a politician is an effective communicator, then you might think, well, actually, they're quite, they're quite a good leader. Um, but it needs more than that. And I think almost undoubtedly, you know, Labour's problem is that what, you know, even if Jeremy Corbyn's communica communication skills again help to engage voters in this election, it's against the backdrop of somebody who has found some of the other requirements of leadership rather more difficult to um, provide, and indeed whose style of leadership is one that we could argue is not necessarily appropriate to a prime minister. So one... Um, is, of course, that the fact that the party has never come up with a clear line in Brexit and seems to have spent all of its time working out exactly how to nuance its position in order to keep the party together hasn't given the impression of a party that's going, look, this is what we stand for, this is what we're going for. Whereas, of course, Boris Johnson, in the end of the day, decided to go for it, decided to take the risk of dumping the DUP and also of forcing out 
the uh, rebels within his own party. Now, you know, for some people, that is leadership, right? The second issue, obviously, which has dogged him, you know, which is the one thing that the Labour Party's had to do in the last two years, which is not about saying what it would do in government, but where the action lay with itself, which is the issue of anti-Semitism. And again, the fact that the party at least is perceived not to have managed to do something about it that's effective and that Corbyn hasn't seemed to be taking a lead on this, again, you know, doesn't help the party. And of course, the truth is, you know, I mean, it, it, it's something that many of us would understand and some people might well indeed admire. I mean, when Jeremy Corbyn talks about his style of leadership, he essentially says, look, I see my job as to bring people together and to find the pathway that will help um, uh, to unify the country, which kind of sounds like a brilliant CV for the chair of the board. But, of course, the Prime Minister is not the chair of the board. Arguably, that's the role for the monarch, if it's the role for anybody. They, this job is the job of the chief executive. And the chief executive, of course, has to set the direction uh, of the organisation and persuade the organisation that, indeed, it should be going in that direction and, and help to take it there. And that's not the kind of style that Jeremy Corbyn seems to be comfortable with. Indeed, he argues that's not, which is then all epitomised in his position on Brexit, which is, look, I will do what you tell me to do. I will be the neutral referee, right? Which you could argue is perfectly reasonable and in certain circumstances might indeed be appropriate to a role, but it's not clear that it's appropriate to the role of a party leader who wants to be prime minister. We've seen the volatility uh, in, in voting behaviour. And at the last election, you saw some incredible results. The Tories winning Mansfield, the epicentre of the miners' strike. Yep. Labour winning Canterbury yep. and Knightsbridge. Do you yep. think we're going to see more of that in this election, where, the le where, where both parties are making inroads into what were traditional heartlands for the opposition? Well, I mean, it's certainly true that Brexit has helped to, <coughs> to reshape the uh, demographics of party support and in so doing has therefore also reshaped the electoral geography party support. That's particularly true on the Conservative side uh, last time in the last election, somewhat less so than Labour, but it's still there. So, you know, in 2017... The Conservative Party's vote went up by 15 points amongst Leavers. It went down by eight points among, uh, amongst Remainers. Leavers are, of course, disproportionately older people. Well, that fits an existing Conservative stereotype. But it's also disproportionately people with less than the way of educational qualifications and therefore tend to be in more routine working class occupations, which is not traditional Conservative territory. But that is what then you see in the electoral geography of somewhere like Mansfield. The Labour Party, in contrast, in 2017, gained about 12 points amongst Remainers and about six points amongst Leavers. And in so doing ended up being almost as popular amongst graduates as amongst those in working class occupations. Um, and graduates tend to be higher up the occupational uh, scale. So it's winning over relatively middle class voters. So, and again, that's reflected in winning Kensington and also the fact it's got young voters um, uh, in Canterbury. So sure, that's, got, that, that, that's what's been going on. So, I mean, the first thing therefore to realize is that the baseline from which we are looking at is already one in which the Conservatives are doing relatively well amongst sections of our society where traditionally you wouldn't expect them to do so, and therefore in places where you wouldn't expect them to do so. So the reason why, for example, you know, Mansfield might now be followed by Bishop Auckland and um, Workington and Ashfield, all of which are constituencies that in a general election at least have never voted for, for the Conservatives, is because, you know, 
at the moment at least, the polling data is saying, well, actually, you know what, the Conservative vote is even higher amongst Leave voters than it was in, in, in 2017, much higher, although that was than the equivalent figure for 2015, but it's still lower amongst Remain voters than it was two years ago. So that, that uh, changed electoral geography that was in evidence in 2017 could indeed go yet further though we do have to remember that a lot of it is already baked into the baseline that we're looking at but yes it might go a bit further and of course yeah, but however the other thing i want to say however about about some of these northern seats i mean there will undoubtedly be great excitement in uh, central office if indeed one or more of these constituencies fall and doubtless there will be a temptation to claim Oh, this just goes to show how Boris yet again can reach parts of the electorate other, that other people can't. Now, that, however, could well be a serious misrepresentation. One simple reason why the Conservatives might win these seats is, of course, the other thing we know about these seats is that 60% of the Labour vote was a Remain vote. The Labour vote in these constituencies, although it's split, is, is a majority Remain vote. And the Labour Party, therefore, is at risk of losing votes in these seats to the Liberal Democrats. The Liberal Democrats won't necessarily do terribly well in these seats, but if the Liberal Democrats take votes off the Labour Party and the Tories simply hang on to what they've got, bingo, the Tories could win. Not gaining any more votes than Theresa May did in these constituencies two years ago. And in other words, it's the legacy that Theresa May has given Boris Johnson that gives him the opportunity to win these seats, uh, at least as much as anything that Boris Johnson may, may be able to add to that. So, sure... Uh, the, and, and the, you know, again, if you look at um, the demographics of party support, I mean, basically, there is very, very little difference now between so-called ABC1 middle class voters and C2DE working class voters because Brexit has helped to squeeze the class divide because Brexit is an issue on, you know, it, 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 it basically divides by education. Um, and, the, uh, and, you know, graduates being Remain and therefore that pushes middle class people in every direction and uh, others go towards the Conservatives. Uh, what, of course, it's also done is it opened up the age division that was already evident there under Ed Miliband, you know, and the biggest division in our society is, is, is by age. The Conservatives are way ahead amongst older voters and they're way behind amongst younger voters. And that now is a dominant story in our politics. Uh, I know there's still a way to go in the campaign. Yeah. And I know that it's hard to make predictions, but yeah. if uh, if you were to put a tenor on it, and you can be as vague as you like, yeah. What what is your prediction? Well, I mean, I, I, I tell you, I don't bet, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, the, the answer to it is that you know, I think the Conservatives at the moment are about two to one on. Um, you know, they've got at least a, a sixty-six percent chance of winning, um, and the longer, I mean. Although Labour have made progress, the Conservatives have also made progress at squeezing the Brexit Party. The net effect of it have been is that Labour are at least as far behind as they were at the beginning of the campaign. So we're halfway through, and so far Labour have not narrowed the lead. Um, or alternatively, the Conservative vote hasn't fallen back and thereby reducing the lead. Um, something's got to happen in the next three weeks for uh, the position to change. Um, and every day and hour that passes without a change will be every day and hour when the chances of the Conservative Party uh, winning an overall majority will increase. And at this point, given the polling, what would that mean in terms of seats? For the well, teams? you're probably talking about an overall majority of around 60, 70, 80 or so. Um, a big majority? Well, relatively big, yes, yeah, sure. I mean... Um, big uh, since 2005. I, 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 yeah, sure, and certainly potentially enough that... Even so, that it, I mean, obviously, one of the things that's coming down the track is if Boris Johnson, you know, manages to negotiate, uh, get, gets us out by the 31st of January, then he's got to, he's got he enters this transition period, 
in which um, the government is committed to negotiating by the end of December next year, or we leave without a trade deal. Um, shall we say that despite the assertions of the government, there are many who are doubtful about whether or not that can be achieved, and that therefore whether or not uh, Boris Johnson is indeed going to try to pursue no deal at around roughly this time next year. His ability to do that will be strengthened the bigger his majority, because I think certainly one of the uncertainties that would surround a Boris Johnson majority government is how many Conservative MPs are there who are, yes, perfectly happy to sign up to Johnson's Brexit deal, perfectly happy to sign up to a Canada-style free trade agreement, but are not, and who did not rebel uh, in order to allow the Ben Bill to go through, which um, uh, 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 meant that no deal couldn't happen at the end of October, but who actually wouldn't necessarily be willing to back no deal mm. at the back end of next year. And so um, a small majority for Boris could still mean he isn't able to pursue no deal. He gets a larger uh, majority, then perhaps he might be able to do so. Uh, just finally, you've become an icon, in part due to your role on an election night on yes. the BBC. Mm. Um, are, are you comfortable with your status as a national treasure? No. <laughs> Why not? Well, I mean, I, 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 I live with it, but you know, I mean, I, I mean, the, the the point is, it's not, it's not about me. I mean, I mean, a um, one-time politician I was talking to once said to me, and I, I, I took it to heart, which was that you know, the point about you that is not about you. It's, it's that what you're trying to do is to talk about the substance. So I am simply trying to help people to understand what's going on to the best of my ability and to try to communicate that to a wider audience. But frankly, I am not trying, trying to sell myself. I don't do personal. Um, I am, you know, and you can ignore me at will. I don't care, right? I, I, you know, and I'm not trying to be some celebrity who appears in Hello Magazine and trying to sell myself or all the rest of it, okay? I am simply trying to help uh, voters, politicians, everybody else to understand what's going on, perhaps because, you know, you know, the one thing I have some ability with perhaps is to look at data that for many people makes them freeze, but perhaps actually you can, uh, if you look at them closely enough and analyze them properly, you can get some understanding of what's going on. So, but that's for me, that's what it's about. And frankly, you know, all the rest of it is, is frippery. So you wouldn't go into the jungle or anything like that? No. no have you ever been offered not. anything like that? No, I, once, or, once or twice the odd um, kind of. I'm, I'm, I mean, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm occasionally willing to do the uh, the odd daft thing. Um, so I mean, you know, I'm, occasionally I've been asked to do the odd comedy program where, um, you know, but where they want somebody to act as a straight man to kind of talk about something about politics. Well, of course, in the end, they never bothered to air it. So you know, <laughs> and I've, I've done things like you know, dre you know, for for a, for a Christmas politics program you know, dress up in a wizard's hat and kind of, you know, pre predict what's going to happen. I mean, that's, that's fine. That's all the way of kind of, you know, a, a piece of fun. And I'm, you know, I'm quite happy for people to take the mickey out of me. But um, so I, I, I'm, I'm not completely dur and unrelenting. It's just simply that I'm not particularly interested in selling myself. But I, am I willing to do things that um, might uh, help a television or a radio company to be able to... Um, uh, uh, engaged uh, uh, the program with a wider audience sure fine that's perfectly fine or indeed a podcast which I'm very grateful for you're welcome John thank you very much well, there you go John Curtis so many stats and facts in there 
I could have spoken to him for hours. So hopefully I'll get him back on at some point in the future. We recorded that in this amazing office he's got in Glasgow that I think is inside some old bank just on the outskirts of the city centre. So we're just surrounded we're in this wood panelled office surrounded by stacks of paper. That was an amazing experience and what a phenomenal guest. Keep your canvassing, election stories, however you want to interpret the brief, just funny stories of uh, politics coming in. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Rosie got in touch. Um, she said, on a very hot day during the 2017 general election, a very nice couple with a very sweet old dog turned up to help. They got sent off to canvas in a particularly hilly part of Exeter. It's all quite hilly. After a while, the dog started panting heavily and seemed to be struggling, but the owners reassured everyone it was OK. Eventually, it became clear the dog was struggling and they took it home. A week later, we found out they decided to take it to the vet on the way home, but it never made it. Such was their level of commitment, they did actually come back to canvas after that, but we'd never fully gotten over the collective guilt. I don't think we ever told Ben what had happened. Ben Bradshaw, I presume, the candidate. Oh, my word. That's uh, that's quite bleak, Rosie. <laughs> but um, I'm sure that dog... Um, what greater legacy, what greater act for that dog's um, memory than for, for Ben to be returned to Parliament. So there you go. The, the dog on some level helped, and I think I think we all know that. Uh, email us, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, I mean, people are... I'm asking for light-hearted stories. Some of these are quite bleak, but um, by all means, um, send in your bleak ones. My guest on the political party live this week uh, is Alan Duncan. That's going to be recorded on Wednesday night. Do check the Other Palace Twitter feed for any returns. Occasionally there are a couple on the day. The Political Party podcast Christmas special with MP4 and Sadiq Khan is at the Bloomsbury Theatre on the 18th of December. There's only a couple of tickets left for that. And my tour, Brexit Pursued by a Bear, resumes in the new year, starting at the Salford Lowry on Tuesday the 14th of January. But all over the country... Nottingham, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Newcastle, Aberdeen, all sorts of wonderful places. All tickets are available on the website, mattford.com slash live. What better Christmas present for the loved one in your life um, than a ton of tickets to that show? Anyway, thanks for downloading. Please tell everyone about it. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. And I'll see you tomorrow. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.